people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our number here, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere you got a comment or question want to give us a call you can also go to our website an economy of one.com an economy of one.com and of course facebook an economy of one you can go there like us see all the stuff our producers put up and uh take a look at what i'm reading and and what i'm looking at as well we got a lot of things to touch on today uh we're going to tell you how to get a free home and we're going to tell you some of the uh the interesting things that are happening uh, around um, uh, minimum wage, and of course we're gonna we're gonna refer back to a story last week how techno- technology is making us lonelier and lonelier. But first, I got a little bone to pick with the world in the sense that uh, Reason Magazine came out with an article that essentially said. Uh, not only is uh, economics the uh, dismal science, uh, apparently economists um, not very nice people. Now, I don't consider myself an economist. I didn't go to school and become an economist. But I am highly tied to the economy and talking about economists. And the, the article talks about a broad range of studies have found Economic students exhibit a stronger tendency toward, you guessed it, antisocial behavior relative to their peers. Now, I kind of take that personally. The, the, the study showed that uh, economist students tend to defect more in prisoners' dilemma games, contribute less than their fair amount in games involving uh, maximization of the common pool investments offer less than a fair split in ultimatum games and uh, contribute less to consolation prizes for losers. Now, the sad thing is, I don't disagree with any of that. I feel that way too. Um, when it comes to economics, I'm very pragmatic about this. But, of course, the study has to go on and try to lay down a thought process that we're innately born that way. That there's a gene defect in our system that if we study economics and we live our life or our profession is around economics, then... There's something inherently wrong with us, something inherently evil. So uh, 
Given that information, I will leave it up to you. I slightly take offense to that. But I'll leave it up to you to determine in listening to me whether you think I'm inherently evil and uh, whether I have a genetic defect on uh, how I think about things and think about money. Once again, personally, I think I'm very pragmatic. But uh, use your own judgment. Anyway, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. The housing bubble we had, oh my, hard to believe it's been seven years ago now, 2007, 2008, um, was blamed mainly on subprime mortgages, meaning people that couldn't afford to put a large amount of money down and couldn't afford the payments. And I've been doing some some studying around that, and I've studied all the way back to the 1930s where really the modern housing crisis started. And I won't go too deep into that now, but let's take a look at what happened in 07 and 06 or what led up to it. And the political climate was that we need to get more people owning their own home. So we need to lower the standards. Prior to that, it was very common for people who wanted a mortgage to put 20% down. And that was the requirement. You have 20% down, you have a good debt to income ratio on your balance sheet, steady job, that kind of stuff. You could get a mortgage, you could pay that mortgage, and everybody was happy, including the bank. What started to happen was not enough people, let me rephrase that, not enough voters were getting into their own home. So the government felt we need to lower the standards. So they did that several ways. One, they made it so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac could take over all the mortgages, buy them from the banks, lay off the bet, put all the risk on the American taxpayer. Second thing they did is start lowering the requirements. So they went from 20% down to 10% down to 5% down to eventually 3% down. And then they lowered the income to debt service ratios. Now let's just take a look at the down payment first. If you were planning on buying a house and you had 40,000 bucks, you could put a 20% payment down on a $200,000 house. But let's say the requirements change and you only need to put 10% down. Now some of us would say, cool, I'm only gonna put 20% down, I'll put, or 10% down, I'll put 20,000 down, and I'll leave 20 grand in the bank. Trouble is, a lot of people went out there and said, hey, I got 40,000 to put down. I was planning on spending it anyway. Instead of a $200,000 house, I'm gonna buy a $400,000. I'm gonna double my house size. Now that increases the payment, but the payment structure was relaxed also. So, Still qualified for the payment. Then they lower it down to 
So now instead of a $400,000, I can buy $800,000 house. Payments relaxed for the ratio of my income. So I'm still good. Real estate agents love this because now they're getting commission on an $800,000 house instead of a two hundred. Banks love it because they can sell an $800,000 mortgage to Fannie and Freddie instead of a two hundred. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy until they're not. Until things change. Until the value of that $800,000 house suddenly becomes... 600,000. And now all the ratios are messed up. And people start defaulting on those mortgages, start walking away from those mortgages. So you can see it's not just subprime. These were prime prime borrowers. These people had high credit scores, good numbers on their their FICO score. So they were prime lenders, but yet they put themselves in a position so that they would default. Now, this started, like I said, way back in the 30s. Back in the 30s, you know, back then you couldn't get a 30-year mortgage. No bank would loan you money past 20 years. And they didn't like doing that. They didn't like carrying the risk. So that's when the government started stepping in. And starting setting uh, setting up government uh, sponsored enterprises to lay off the risk, they they started taking the risk from the banks. So we started getting thirty year mortgages, so people could afford once again more house for the money they had, and that's where the slippery slope started. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It got real slippery because the valuations started dropping dramatically. But it wasn't just subprime. It was prime lenders also, or prime borrowers also, that because of the relaxed standards and taking advantage of the relaxed standards, ended up having a mortgage in a situation that was less than prime, shall we say. It became classified as prime. Now that leads into the next topic I want to talk about when we come back is the moral dilemma of all this and how do you get a free house out of this deal? It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our website is aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com. Our phone number, 844-244-3750. And don't forget us on Facebook, An Economy of One. So, you want a free house? Here's how you do it. You buy way more house than you need. You default on the mortgage. You have no integrity, so you don't move out. And you let the government make a whole bunch of changes in the foreclosure laws 
over a five-year period, and the statute of limitations runs out, so you get to keep your house. That's a hell of a deal, isn't it? What we're seeing in several states, mainly Florida, uh, New Jersey, New York, what's happened is people got into the situation we just talked about, bought too much house, their income to debt ratio was out of line, and so they defaulted. And what's happened is, you know, the government didn't want to see all these foreclosures. Banking industry didn't want to see all these foreclosures. Looks bad on the balance sheet. Fannie and Freddie didn't want all these foreclosures. So the government, over the last several years, has made 69 changes to the foreclosure rules. So every time a bank would start to foreclose on a series of of mortgages, for example, Bank of America has about 20,000 mortgages in foreclosure. Once they started to foreclose, then the government changed the rules and made them jump through some more hoops, made them try to work it out with the borrower. And that keeps going on and on and on. And what's happened now is attorneys are looking at state law and saying, hey, wait a minute, you waited too long. These people haven't made payments for over five years. If you haven't closed, uh, foreclosed in the first five years, you're just out of luck. It's too late. You can't get it. And while the New Jersey court said that no one gets a free house. This is this is not the way things need to work. Now the New Jersey Bankruptcy Court is saying it is with great reluctance that we're going to have to abandon that previous position because the statute of limitations is running out. 90% of these foreclosed homes are still occupied. People have been living in them for five years and not making payments. In New Jersey, it's six years. Government's come out with 69 different mortgage modification programs forcing lenders to repeatedly scrap previous offers to homeowners and extend new terms. Now, are the banks blameless? Of course not. We got the robo-signature thing uh, that many screwed up on. Uh, banks don't want to foreclose, so they moved the mortgages around on their balance sheets and uh, tried all kinds of things. But it's coming back to bite them now because they can't foreclose. And these people, been several court rulings, especially in Florida, where... People have been able to keep their homes, and uh, the banks could no longer foreclose. Now, that being said, we're starting to see an epidemic of this. You realize there's $1.3, I think, trillion of student loans out there. Out of that $1.3 trillion, only 37% of those student borrowers are in repayment and on time. 37%. That means 63% are 
are either in delinquency or they're in some type of deferral or delayed repaying program without being technically delinquent. 37%. I saw an article uh, in a paper uh, yesterday, someone holding up a sign that said, uh, housing is a right. Well, housing's not a right. It's a basic need, I'll give you that. But it's not a right, especially using taxpayer money. Student loans, same way. Education might be a need, might be important, might be necessary, but it's not a right to the point where you can put a gun to my head, take my money, and have students use it for their tuition. We're creating in this society an entire culture of not paying your debts, of borrowing the money, and then when the payments come due, claiming victimhood. Well, if you don't read the terms, if students don't know they got to pay that money, I mean, one of the basic things you learn in life is when you borrow money, you got to pay it back. And you got to pay it back under the terms you agree. Interest, monthly payments, that kind of stuff. But it's becoming more and more widely accepted to claim victimhood on debt and not pay it back. And why should we? Government's the same way. Government borrows money all over, and they haven't paid a dime in principal back since 1960. So it's a cultural thing, and it's very important to the future of this country that people aren't start understanding what debt is and how to manage it. Coming up, we're going to chat with Commander Kurt Lippold, former commander of the USS Cole. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I'm privileged now to be joined by Commander Kurt Lippold. He's a United States Navy retired. He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide attack by Al-Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen. He was the executive officer of the USS Shiloh. And uh, he's done unique assignment as the operations officer responsible for training and operation of the USS Arlie Burke, he's a commander, currently serves as the president of Lippold Strategies, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning. He also serves as the vice president for military policy and strategic development of Philip Stutson Company, Incorporated Grassroots Public Affairs Firm and a True Patriot. Commander, welcome back to the show. Gary, thank you very much. Great to be on again. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I got 
you know, so many things I, I wanted to touch base on. And uh, some of them have to do with global economics. Some of them are kind of peripheral on the, on the economics. But I'd like to start with, you know, you have a unique knowledge uh, of the Middle East and, and you're a student of, of that. Uh, what do you, let's talk about the Iran nuclear deal uh, a little bit. I mean, where do you... Where do you see our role in that? And, and uh, you know, everybody I talk to isn't real thrilled with with what's going on there. How do you see that from a military standpoint? Well, right now, Gary, uh, I probably run counter to a lot of folks, but I'm a believer that right now let the negotiations continue, even though we're stretching them out a little bit, mm-hmm. mostly because if you don't, in some ways we're going to be back to square one. And while sanctions clearly brought them to the table, if everyone walks away, the centrifuges are going to continue to spin, and that's going to be a major concern. So clearly, uh, the United States, uh, with Secretary Kerry over there, along with our uh, British and French allies who are also at the table, and by the way, the French are driving a pretty hard deal on this, are really trying to hold the Iranians' feet to the fire. And uh, so I think we should stay at this point, but nonetheless, from a military standpoint, uh, you know, all options remain on the table. Planning is still going forward at the Pentagon, and uh, let's just hope we don't have to get to that point. You know, <clears throat> there's been a lot of conversation in the past that, uh, you know, Iran is a one year away from getting the bomb. There's six months. They probably already have it. Russia's given them some. North Korea's given them some. Uh, in your opinion, wh- where is Iran from a nuclear standpoint? I mean, do, do you believe they they have the capability of building one now, or do they have any stashed in a bunker somewhere? I don't believe they have the capability to build one now. I do believe that they are possessing the technology that, given time, and some uh, further development on maybe some of the trigger devices mm-hmm. that they would be able to assemble and put together a nuclear weapon, uh, whether that would be a full year until they have that uh, reached out breakout point, uh, I'm not so sure. And I think that's one of the real unknowns that the world has to worry about is where are they exactly? You know, the, um, the... You know, I... go ahead. I was going to say, I think we can, we should be a little instructed by history here again, by how we negotiated with the Soviet Union in the late 60s, early 70s, with the strategic armed limitation talks. Right. In Salt One, we got burnt. Basically, Russia had more than we thought they had. They didn't mm-hmm. give us the access they needed. And consequently, every subsequent negotiation boiled down to trust but verify. In other words, it's not so much what they have, but it's the inspection regime that gets put into place. That's what we need to make sure is absolutely rock solid when it comes to Iran, is what's the regime that is going to allow us to go anywhere, anytime, and inspect anything that we believe is related to a nuclear weapons program. You know, you, you mentioned the Soviet Union, and that was one of the bullet points I had because I'm I'm late 50s, so that that was the era I grew up in. I can remember as a uh, a kid in elementary school doing the drills where you climb under your desk, you know. And and now we look about, back at that and say, yeah, we were climbing under there and kissing our butt goodbye. I mean, it, it's not not much uh, radiation fallout protection in those desks. But 
you know, back then, if we look back, seems to me like the Soviet Union was never really suicidal. I mean, the the thought process of uh, mutual destruction kind of deterred things, kind of created the Cold War or, or helped establish the Cold War. And I'm not sure Iran um, really has that thought process of being concerned about uh, some of their own cities and their own people being being blown up also. I mean, if they get the bomb, they get the nuclear weapons, it, it, it maybe I'm being overly cynical. It seems to me like they'd be more likely to use one than, than Soviet Russia ever was. And I believe that you're exactly right, and that is one of the principal concerns that not only we have, the French and British do as well, but obviously the three of us as nations are negotiating our national security when it comes to Iran. This is why I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is so concerned for Israel, because he's viewing it as a negotiation for whether his nation will survive right. or not. That's why it's so critical for him. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to know that, you know, while everyone loved to talk about the United States and mutually assured destruction, that was never a policy of the military. Right. The military always viewed it as we only targeted military facilities. We never aimed for large civilian population centers. Uh, the Soviet Union, tit for tat, kind of did the same thing. If a military target happened to be located next to a city, well, you know, that's that's the fault of the planners not the fault of anyone else. It right. would be collateral damage, essentially. I'm not so sure that the Iranians have any concept of that kind of moral warfare where I, I know that's difficult for some people to get their mind around in the fact that you're exchanging nuclear weapons back and forth, you know, and detonating them. But the reality of it is I don't think the Iranians have that same moral standard when it comes to the use of those weapons. And they'll justify using it against anyone, anywhere, anytime, if they feel they're having it. Because the bottom reason nations pursue to possess nuclear weapons is they view it as the ultimate guarantor of their survival. Right. So at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we make the Iranians comfortable, that we are not out to topple them as a theocracy and a regime. Because if they feel that we're doing that, and that is a name of ours, then they're going to do whatever it takes to get a nuclear weapon because no country that's ever possessed them has been invaded, attacked, and taken over. Right. Now, that being said, let's say Iran does get nuclear capability. They do have nuclear weapons. They do have the trigger devices, and they have accurate delivery systems. If If I was Syria, if I was... Jordan, if I was Iraq, if I was Turkey, I mean, if I was everybody, I'd want one too, wouldn't I? Absolutely. And that's why it is so critical that we get a very hard-driven bargain to get us in to Iran to ensure that they do not build one, because it will kick off a Middle East nuclear arms race. And the 800-pound gorilla that's going to get the first one 
the Saudis are going to end up negotiating with the Pakistanis, and the Pakistanis who have nuclear weapons mm-hmm. are flat out either going to give them weapons or are going to negotiate to give them the technology for the Saudis to do it themselves. And that is going to kick off a regional arms race based really on sectarian lines with the Sunnis, with Saudi Arabia, and the Shia with Iran and their spheres and countries of influence. And that is the most dangerous and volatile combination you can have there. So really, I mean, there's a lot of conservative pundits out there and they're criticizing uh, Secretary Kerry. They're criticizing President Obama doing this, saying he's trying to, you know, salvage a piece of legacy, trying to use the document as a, a fig leaf to to uh, build that legacy. But this is really a much, much bigger issue and bigger picture than what we're seeing for 45 seconds on the news every night. Absolutely, because you got to remember, he, if the president is negotiating so hard and giving away the farm, he may get an agreement that makes him look good right now. But if he wants a long-term legacy, it has to be one that ensures that the Iranians never get nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It's not going to do him any good to get an agreement that prevents them from getting weapons now. And in five years, they've obtained one because he did not put an inspections regime into place that allowed us to ensure they don't get them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've read several things that right now we're looking at essentially just a presidential agreement. And in a couple of years, a new president may or may not uphold it, may may change everything. Who knows? But uh, I was reading an article today by Thomas Sowell and he illustrated your very point that it's all based on the key is accurate inspections. Absolutely. And here's another point, though, that I fundamentally disagree with in how the administration is approaching it. If the president negotiates an agreement with Iran, regardless of what the criteria are for that agreement, this will be the first time in the history of our nation that the president will have negotiated an agreement regarding nuclear weapons that has not received the advice and consent of the Senate, whether it is or is not a treaty. And I think that if the president feels so confident of the agreement that he is about to negotiate over our national security and Israel's survival, then he should be confident enough to put that before the duly elected representatives of our nation. If he is unwilling to do that, There is probably something fundamentally flawed in that treaty, in which case the administration can say, Senate's got a role. No, the only role the administration wants them to have right now is with the sanctions regime. I want my representatives to be able to see that treaty and approve whether or not we as a nation are going to allow it to go into force. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And and what what principled person, whether they're in the same party with the president or not, what principled person would vote against preventing Iran from getting nuclear weapons? I mean, really, I mean, you're absolutely right. We ought to have some transparency there and have some of our leadership uh, in the discussion. We're speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, commanding officer of the USS Cole, when it became under terrorist attack in uh, Yemen from al-Qaeda. Um, Commander, can you hang on through the break? I got a few more questions for you. I'd be delighted to. We'll be right back. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. 
Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. We're speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, the Vice President for Military Policy and Strategic Development of Philip Stutson Company, Inc., grassroots public affairs firm, and the commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under attack in the port of Aden, Yemen. Um, speaking of Yemen, um, I wanted to get your take on it because I, you know, I don't, I'm not a student of that area, but hardly a day goes by. I don't see a half a dozen articles on what's going on in Yemen now uh, from your experience and, and knowledge. Tell me a little bit about Yemen and, and the strategic aspect of that and, and what's happening over there. Well, Yemen, uh, in a big picture, is a very strategic country for the United States and the world because of its geographic location at the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula, sitting astride some of the most strategic sea lanes in the world. When you look at the millions and millions of gallons of oil that go by Yemen and its coastline before they go up into the Red Sea through the Suez Canal and feed the underbelly of Europe, it goes right by that nation. And the fact that you have two successive governments, first with President Saleh, who was recently toppled, President Hadi took over, uh, the inability of both of them to really extend control of the government out through a nation that was unified in 1994 after a civil war, they were not, they had bad governance, they weren't taking care of the people, they got disenfranchised, the Houthi rebels decided to stand up. What happened with that, Iran saw an opportunity to influence what they viewed as a disenfranchised Shia minority. Once again, religion is coming into play here. And they armed the Houthi rebels in violation of United Nations sanctions. And they subsequently marched on the capital, toppled the government, chased them down. And once you saw Iranian influence extending now into a country on the southern border of Saudi Arabia, then that's when the Saudis said enough. And along with a lot, of, with all of the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, Arab states in the region, as well as Egypt, as well as Pakistan, they decided enough with the Iranian influence. I mean, if you look back over the last few years, you've really seen Iran extend their influence outside of principally Syria and Lebanon with Hezbollah. They're now pushing into Yemen. They are working up into Iraq, helping with some of those forces, trying to take their country back from ISIS. So you can see that Iranian influence is now beginning to encircle a lot of the countries in the region, making them very uncomfortable. And the Saudis basically said, that's it. We're not putting up with it. And they've begun to set up the forces necessary, if, if they're required, actually mm-hmm. to put boots on the ground, go in and start a fight in Yemen over what should be a regional conflict based in that country for those people to fight out is now turning into a larger and potentially uh, sectarian religious war. Now, you know, I mean, Yemen is a very poor country. Uh, it shouldn't be. It should be a, a nice commercial hub and, and an industrial uh, hive as well as tourism should be there. But I read that they got a 37% illiteracy rate. They got 1500 bucks per capita GDP. They got a high infant mortality rate. I mean, it's, it's just not the, the Island paradise, uh, that it could not Island, but it's not the, 
the Middle Eastern industrial paradise, tourist paradise, it really should be for its location. And is that, you know, what you've described? I mean, I know that Saudi Arabia got boots on the ground right by the border and and that kind of stuff. Is that going to be something that you think is going to suck us in? I, I don't think it will. Um, and I think that we would be wise to stay out of that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that if, if though all those countries want to come together, if Saudi Arabia wants to spearhead the effort to form an Arab intervention force along the lines that NATO has, where they pull all the people together and have commitments for armed forces, cooperative military engagements, security arrangements with each other, let them put that structure together. Hopefully we will be able to maintain some influence over it, but we want them to be able to solve the problems. And I think what you're seeing is just a red line being drawn in the sand where Saudi Arabia is telling Iran enough. From a strategic perspective, it was brilliant of Iran to engage in that area to kind of stir things up because anything that they're doing like that is distracting those countries from the focus, which really is Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon. Right. And we right. cannot take our eye off that ball. Yeah, yeah, build a fire one place and and have everybody focus on that and do what they want on another place. So uh, Exactly. Yeah. And that's why we need to maintain the focus on focus. Again, it goes right back to Iran. It goes back to the nuclear weapons issue. And all those countries over there are just as concerned. They have just as much to lose if we don't get a rock-solid agreement with the Iranians to not build a nuclear weapon, because it, it will kick off an arms race. And you know, it's not like the Saudi Arabians don't have enough money to go buy a new. <laughs> That's right. Well, like you said, the Middle East isn't Russia. I mean, it's, exactly. it's a different mentality, different. It, it won't be the Cold War that we had in the 60s and the in the 70s like like uh, we did with Russia. So, well, Commander, uh, once again, I, I really appreciate you taking time uh, away from your day for us. It's been very informative. You've seen it from the other side. And uh, we're not looking through it through a newspaper or a a 45-second TV uh, blurb or something. So, once again, thanks for all your time, Commander, and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Gary. Great to be on the show. Appreciate it. Be well. We've been speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired, former commander of the USS Cole. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.